grab your kahwa, and join Amina and I. On today's episode, all the way from the UK, Amina Atik will be joining us. Amina is a Yemeni Scouse poet, performance artist, and social activist. Born and raised in the United Kingdom, it sparked her interest to connect with her cultural roots through spoken word and activism. So today we'll be chatting with her about her journey as a poet, cultural dynamics of growing up in the UK and being Yemeni, while exploring the rich Yemeni history and poetry. Amina, I want to thank you for taking the time out today with me to come on this podcast as our first poet. I have a very special place in my heart for poetry. So when I saw you online and connected with you through a friend, I was super, super excited. Um, and to get uh, us started, I would like you for you to just introduce yourself to the audience. Okay, so um, Sumaya, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, so I'm... Um, I go by the label Yemeni Scouse, which is my Yemeni and my Scouse identity. Scouse is um, an identity where if you're from Liverpool, which is in the UK. Um, so I'm a, I'm a writer. Um, I also, I'm a performance artist. So I perform my work um, around the country um, and I facilitate and I'm also an activist. Um, that's pretty much the labels, but the labels keep changing every year, depending what, you know, like last year, I never called myself an activist. Um, whatever, labels are labels, but I, I genuinely, if I was to describe what it is that I do, I would say that poetry is the gateway to the truth and people want honesty. Wow, that's pretty deep. <laughs> pretty much what kind of what drives me to to do what I do I think it's truth mm-hmm. that's very very deep I love how you like said that like it's the gateway to the truth and what I'm curious about is to learn more about like how you had to balance your identity growing up as a Yemeni female a Muslim female in the UK oh um so as a Yemeni British and Muslim see that that's a lot of identities right it's a lot and and a lot of people might say that's uh that's a that's a lot of barriers, but I see them as blessings as well. Um, and I'll talk about both. So, what was life growing up? I would say my being Yemeni, and I think a lot of Yemeni young people don't value that our parents were constantly reminding us about our Yemeni heritage constantly, but we never appreciated it when we were younger. But when we grow older, we're like, wow, our culture is actually so beautiful. And I want to know more. And sometimes it can be a little bit too late. So you're kind of like running <laughs> to catch up. Um, so it was, it, was, it was an interesting way of growing up because I felt like I had two lives. I had a life where I was so Yemeni, like when I led Yemeni at home. As soon as I step out, I'm in university or I'm performing on a gig it was kind of like I had to play two roles. However, obviously as an artist and as a writer, you grow up to, to kind of pave your way through your identity and what that means. And I definitely, my writing allowed me to do that. My writing has allowed me to understand who I am and what my identity is. Um, and it's still a work in progress, especially now with the war in Yemen. It's made me think about a lot of things about my trips to Yemen every summer. And now that I'm not visiting Yemen in the last seven years, what does that mean? Is that a loss of my identity? Is that is that something I didn't appreciate? And um, but it's also a blessing because, you know, as a Muslim woman, Yemeni with a scouse accent, you know, and you go into an audience that is predominantly like white middle class. You come on stage and everyone's shocked by your accent. They're shocked that you're wearing a hijab. And not to say that they are not welcoming. They're so welcoming. But they're just, like, eager to know more. So it becomes your selling point in the artistic world. People don't forget you. Mm-hmm. Um, which has worked as an advantage. So it is a blessing. And I, I like to show it off all the time. You got to represent us. So do show off, do showcase your work and your talent. I think it's much needed. And it's so moving. It's also like when I watch your videos. And I recently, like I watched your interview with the Yemeni Alliance Committee on Friday and I was bawling my eyes out. So I'm very proud of you to like get up on those stages. 
And one question like I wanted to like explore with you, and you hit a mark. And I think a lot of Yemenis who grow up in Western societies can resonate with this. Is like balancing both identities. Like you know, at home you're Yemeni. You know, like you're talking Arabic at home, and if you're not, you're eating the food. But then the moment you step out. You're trying to navigate this world to balance like who you are, but also fit into like the Western society standards. And, you know, a lot of people when we're young, we sometimes kind of step away from our roots. So I'm curious to know, like, if that also happened to you. No, definitely. I mean, uh, like even like Arabic school, like everyone attends weekend Arabic school. I don't know about you somewhere in America, but in the UK, you have Monday to Friday English school, Saturday to Sunday Arabic school. Yes, we did. But I, I just, I didn't appreciate the Arabic language, to be honest. I saw it as a way just to connect me to my faith, but not really to connect me to my identity. And I think that's a lot, that's what Arabic schools fail to do as well. That's another topic to talk about, where they really fail to do that because they would kind of engrave this whole, like Islamic side, which is great. Mm-hmm. It's also about who we are and what our identity. And I feel like sometimes it was done out of fear, not out of love. So honestly, if you spoke to me two years ago, I would have forgot how to speak Arabic. Like even half. No, and even like now when I'm talking, I'm like, it's like a bloody achievement because it took like three years to to, to get it back. I mean, it's not perfect, but like I'm just so glad I can understand it and understand others and and speak it. But um, definitely, it's it, it and even now when you're growing up, it's it's just because and, and this is the thing we don't appreciate about our parents. My mom taught me the the um, kind of like I know people are against the idea of a woman should should just be to cook or to clean, yeah. but. And that's how I saw it because we live in the West. We're told of what our mothers and their ancestors look like and what they, how they articulate things and how they think. So when my mom used to say, I need to teach you how to cook, I need to teach you how to clean, I used to go, I'm a feminist. Like, you don't speak to me. Yeah, <laughs> like, nah, like, I don't want to go in the kitchen. <laughs> However, growing up as, as I am now, I'm so glad my mom taught me that. Because it wasn't the cooking and cleaning, it was how to look after your home, how to look after yourself. That's what they were teaching us. Exactly. I think also like connecting us back to like our culture, like food is in the root of culture, like everything. And I didn't realize that until I was much older. And that's like a whole different topic as well. But I love the fact that you brought that up. Definitely. And look, um, there's a lot of flaws in our community, but there's also a lot a lot of stuff that we don't we don't actually appreciate and it's literally communication because my mother says to cook and to clean but really what she's trying to say is I mean I want to teach you how to look after yourself I want to teach you how to look after your home wherever you are in this world so that you can be independent for yourself and I realized that when I found the love and I was like this is actually and and also you've got to understand my mom speaks Arabic doesn't speak English so there was also a language barrier and the way me and my mum connected is when she used to brush my hair and to put it into plaits or when she taught me how to cook mm-hmm. um, and that was another thing that was another layer how do we connect with our mothers in the west when they don't speak English and they're so and they were born in Yemen and I talk a lot about how me and my mum connected to mm-hmm. um brushing my hair because that was the only time we'd really have a conversation properly um and I'm talking when I was a lot younger when I was a teenager um but yeah no you bring up a great point because I think you know a lot of us kids who grew up here with immigrant parents we have this identity crisis and hardships that we go through to connect with our parents and vice versa. Like it's a complex situation for both ends. Like our parents want to connect with us. They want to speak with us. But then there is that language barrier to express your emotions or to like communicate with them. And also like different points of views. 
I think, you know, as we get older, we begin to think and reflect back and we appreciate because for them at the end of the day, they have always tried to do what's best for us, how they viewed what was best. Whether we agree with it or disagree with it, we do have to appreciate their pure intentions. Definitely. Like I said um, to uh, Jihan on the Yemeni Alliance Committee, I said to her, you know, the first time when me and my mom communicated properly was when she said to me, she said, Amina, I was born in a, a village bringing that you didn't see or didn't experience. Um, and then I said the same thing to her. I said, I've had an upbringing that is different from yours that you didn't see or experience. So what we realised, me and my mother, is that meeting halfway was was a was the best way to communicate and understand both of our worlds and our concerns. And it's so funny because was me and my mother are so alike in personality and ambitions and dreams. You know, I'm the fire and she's the water, but we we have the same kind of definitely same personalities. And honestly, it's been a turning point because obviously when you disconnect with your mother because of, of your activism and, and, and you think that she hates it, when really it was because she didn't understand it. And when I accepted that, wallah, it was like bricks, like bricks on my shoulders that had fallen off. Because, you know, you never want to hate your mother, do you? No, ever. You want your mother to love you. You want your mother to accept you. Oh my God, forget emotional. You want, and, and, and you also want to look after your mother and you want to make sure that she's okay. And I've always had that burden on my shoulders thinking I'm never going to make my mother happy. And it was literally just that conversation that we had that one night. And it was kind of like we had to accept. And my mum said to me, she went, you know, Amina, I've never been against what you do. The only thing that scares me is that I'm protective over you and the things that you do can get you into a lot of danger in terms of my activism and what I say. and Rightfully so, you know, as any mother, you're always protective. No matter how old your child is, they'll always be protective over us. Like my mom always says like, even if you have your kids and you're married, I'm still going to be protective over you and worried about you. Yeah. But yeah, and I and a lot of young people that I, I work with who are from Yemeni backgrounds talk a lot about their their complicated relationships with their parents and and it, it's it's created a lot of like you know really unhealthy homes and mm-hmm. I kind of use my experience to show them that it's just maybe communicating and it's how you communicate and I'm sure it's out of love and not to say there's we have a lot of flaws in our communities that is that is really, really we need to talk and address because I'm not here, even though I'm wearing a flowery top to bring the flowers about my community and about my Yemeni culture. I wish you guys can all see Amina right now. She's absolutely adorable in her flower top. <laughs> <laughs> but it's but that's it. and metaphorically, it's we we're not we're not flowers yet. <laughs> We've still got a lot of lot a lot of dead flowers in our gardens, and we need to address them plant our seeds and grow again because and nurture them like the right healthy way and like providing like that avenue for the kids and the parents to really communicate with each other we need more people like you more people in the community speaking up because again like our parents have their point of view and they just need assistance just as much as we do definitely Sumaya and um, the thing is when you want to change something a lot of people think activism is you go into a community or you go into a, a place or a space and you say what you're doing is wrong and I know what is right and that is not the methodology it's never like that it's something like I have something better for you um and it's about communicating and suggesting a better way for you know for to, to make our lives a, a, a better more effective and and that's when I've approached the Yemeni community, you know, and, and, and I speak to a lot of women who, who are some of my peers, and they're like, we want to change this. And I'm like, but how are you going to change it? You can't go into a, a group of people that who already believe what they're doing is correct, and they have accepted it, and you're going to go in and say that they're wrong. This is not about who's right or wrong. It's about making and building a better future for our children. And, you know, I completely agree with that. You know, reflecting on my own upbringing and looking back to seeing like where my parents were like 10, 15 years ago, how they viewed life, how they viewed things. It's completely different than now. And I'm not saying like, oh, they were bad or anything. No, like I've always loved my parents. 
they just had a different point of views. They had different perspectives, a different mindset, different ways they thought it was the best for us. And that has taken time and growth and slowly with the community changing, they've opened up and realized like, you know what, some ways we're wrong. Like we were wrong for X, Y, and Z. But, you know, now we're going to change that and make sure your experience is better than the ones before you. Definitely. And um, I also think there's a lot of fear as well. Mm-hmm. And it's education. Um, when you, honestly, when I've seen in my Yemen community, when there's been something, I can't remember, I can't pick up a scenario right now, but when you literally put, put the education into that fear, honestly, the Yemeni community, the, the people respond and they accept it. So I, I would never say that our Yemeni community is like, they don't listen. I think they will listen when you give them the right education. And how you deliver your message to them as well. Definitely. I agree. And it's a learning curve. And also it's about them as well, whether they want to as well. Because some people are in denial and they don't want change. I'm sorry. They don't want change. They don't, they, they, and they're, they're afraid that change might, might, might like change their identity, their, their strength of being Muslim. Um, and also I think it's about comfort zone. Um, and yeah, but I think definitely things are changing, but there are also gaps in these changes that we need to fill. Mm-hmm. So one thing I want to talk with you about is, do you remember the first time you ever wrote your first poem? Oh, you know what? I'm not sure. Fun fact, mine's was writing about Tweety Bird. <laughs> I was like a six, I think it was first grade, seven or six year old, but I wrote about Tweety Bird. And that's when I started like falling in love with poetry because it was, I wish I still had that poem, but I remember it was so cheesy for like a six year old talking about all my little Tweety Birds, you know, jumping across the river or like, I don't know what I was thinking, but I thought I was a total badass during that time. Did you acknowledge at that time that was a poetry? Yeah, I did, actually. And I think it was the reason because, you know, for my dad, my dad always wrote poetry. So for me, I was like, oh, I want to write poetry like my dad, too. Amazing. Well, that's great that you had that, like, poetry. Another family member that had a poetry background. Um, Because when people ask me when I wrote the first poem, I'm not too sure because all I know is I was always writing from the age of four. My mom said um, my pen and paper. Uh, was always something that I would always be busy with and she said that I used to write the same stories that I was reading so it wasn't nothing original but it was a it's probably the, the the time when I fell in love with language and what that does um but I would say probably when I acknowledge that it's my poetry is having an impact is probably when I was 15 16 mm-hmm. and it was kind of like when I was starting to write about um, identity politics and I was kind of like navigating who who am I as a, a young Arab woman in Britain and I remember writing this thing which was like they're telling me to go back home they're telling me that I look too different they're telling me that I'm I'm a Muslim terrorist but yet I live here I speak in a, in a scouse accent um the only difference is my hijab and probably in some cases the color of our skin um so it was a very confusing time and um but yeah and that's what I think I kind of acknowledge this is poetry and I'm doing it for a reason um and I still have some of them in my um my box I used to write with an orange highlighter. <laughs> I'm really really glad you still have them I do have some poems left but Honestly, somewhere on my old laptop, hard drive crashed or removed or just it just got lost with our moving. And it's a bit sad to think about it. So to hear that you still have them, it's, you know, when you look back at your writing, you look back at your growth. Definitely. Like, do you feel the same way? Because when I read what I wrote like two years ago, or even like two months ago or like 10 years ago, I'm like, wow, that's a whole different Samaya. <laughs> No, definitely. And this is why a lot of people think writing begins from, from a, I think it's, it becomes from, from a, an idea of a question. You're questioning something. And if you write today how you're feeling, 
but tomorrow you do the same thing, you will see a very different person because you're learning every single day. So even like comparing it from yesterday and today, you will see a difference in the way you, how you're, you're expressing something. And this is why it's so important that people journal anyway, whether you do it as a career or not. It's so therapeutic. It, it, you learn so much about you and the world around you. I mean, I used to do it religiously, which is I wake up every morning, I write, I ask myself, how are you today, Amina? I literally write it. And then I, I, I answer myself. And then by the end of the day, before I sleep, I ask myself again, how are you today, Amina? And this kind of helped with like emotional being, like kind of like looking after your health mentally as well. Um, and it really shifted my energy. Like I became a lot more positive, a, a lot more optimistic. I kind of shifted the anger and frustration towards the writing instead of, instead of kind of articulating it in my daily life. Um, so I, as I say, as my mum says, I became a very calm person. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good to hear. I don't know if my mom would say the same thing about me. She says that. I'm much more like outspoken, much more out there. Like, you know, it's hard for her sometimes to keep up with me. But maybe I'm gonna start doing that, like writing my thoughts every morning, because I've been trying to explore different ways to like meditate my emotions. That's actually a pretty good idea. And you know what? You can still be outspoken, but I realized I was using my energy in places where it didn't, it wasn't required. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like I was just I, basically I was becoming in control of my emotions, and I realized how powerful the mind is. Um, so I'm currently at the moment while I'm undergoing my own experiment, where I'm kind of training my mind, and it's so liberating, wallah, so so liberating. I mean, one thing I I wrote this year, I said that I will say no because I'm someone who feels like if I say no, I feel guilty and it's a responsibility. Um, but I kind of undergo this thing, before you say no, give five reasons why you will say yes. And if it's not enough, then why should you do it? Wow. So, and it's, it's powerful, honestly. I would leave my own clothes on the doorstep and give it to someone else, really. And do you think that's connected to our culture too? Because I feel like, you know, growing up, we give, we want to give to our neighbor, we want to give to our guests, like, you know, hey, like, you know, if your guest is coming, you have to, like, drop everything. Even if it's inconvenient for you, you have to put up a face. Like, we don't set boundaries in our own culture. Definitely. And it's great. It shows our hospitality, our generosity, our kindness. But if it, but I, I believe in this idea of thing, um, this idea of if it's going to neglect yourself, then what is, <laughs> that's not life. And our faith doesn't teach that as well. Uh, it teaches about, you know, um, I don't know if I'm quoting this right, but um, a third, a third water, a third food and a, a third for air. But I was kind of reading this metaphorically and I was thinking this idea of a third for you to survive, mm -hmm. a third for water to keep you energized and a third for, to, for you to breathe like to give to breathe to think to um but yeah I don't know if I quoted this correctly the hadith says <laughs> I'll look up the hadith too guys later and probably say at the end of the episode just in case so give our girl a break <laughs> but that's a that's a very interesting. I don't know if I've heard that hadith before, or maybe I have. I'm trying to think, but I think it is important. Like, like you said, like don't neglect yourself. And there's many ways not to do that. You can write and reconnect with your emotions. You can set your own boundaries. Like, know what's good for you, but also being like realistic with it too. Definitely, and um, but also um, acknowledging that. It is, it is who we are as well. We are the people of the wise, the kindness, the generosity, and it's, but it's also balancing that out as well. Um, I've seen my mother do certain things where she was like literally incapable of doing, exhausted. And I said, why? I said, is that what God wants? <laughs> and she said, yeah, but you know, it's, it's somehow, you know, people, 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 put pressure on you and I said but don't we have to change that she said it will change one day I said well we need to start from today 
And this is the thing we need to start talking about is summer. Oh, that word is a trigger for me. <laughs> you know, I really love this conversation where it's going. When I connected with Amina about a week and a half ago or two, we talked about so much. Like, I think if it wasn't for the different time zones, we wouldn't for hours. But I was like, Amina, you need to get to bed. <laughs> but go for it. Yeah, so my eye is a huge thing. It's a... Uh, it really controls a lot of people's perspective. It prevents a lot of people. It restricts a lot of women specifically. And for those who don't know what sum'a means, it just means reputation in Arabic. Yeah. And um, it's this idea of when you're at your home and you're discussing something with your parents, your neighbours, your whole Yemeni community is involved in this conversation, but indirectly because your mother and your father are thinking about what will other people think. And it's it's really it's it's a lot it's a lot to think about to be honest it's a burden on them, and mm-hmm. um, and it's not healthy at all because like you said it does restrict you, and it affects a lot of women mainly the female um out of the Yemeni community but also it I when it comes to like marriage and stuff um I feel like in the UK a lot of Yemeni men are under pressure to make certain type of money. Mm-hmm. And I've said to a lot of Yemeni girls, if your dad can't afford it, would you expect a 20-year-old young boy will be able to afford that? <laughs> this is a very, like, big topic that, inshallah, like, with more episodes, I will be impacting. But I, I want to hear your perspective on it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I know we could talk about poetry, but it's just no, really no, important ahead. that... Um, no, it's just because it... It's it's both sides. Um, it's just a lot of pressure, I think, and like, and this goes back to our first I, about identity and about all of these things about certain cultural stuff that we brought from Yemen to here. But it's really about how do we integrate with these things, and how do we? Because a lot of people say, "Oh, you 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 look liberal," but but I would then like my soul is very traditional. I'm an old soul, mm-hmm. like if, like. If I was to choose where I'd want to be, I would want to be in the village in Yemen, bareface, jalabia, my hijab, <laughs> literally washing my clothes with my hands. Oh my god! I remember our machine in Yemen. Okay, guys, we didn't have a washer and dryer. I'm not saying they don't exist in Yemen, but like my dad never got us one, so we would literally wash it, and the thing would spin and like you know, um, drain the water out. And then I have to squeeze it and hang it outside or hang it on the rooftop. But, you know, I used to get so frustrated with it. But I don't know why I was much more efficient doing my laundry then now that I am back home, like back in Cali. No, definitely. Like, well, like, I, that, and that's if you ask me where I would want to be. Um, but now, obviously, we live here. We live in the West. And, and you don't want to lose that part of your identity. But, you you know, there's certain parts in the Western where that can work. Um and it's about integrating them in the best way because people say, are you traditional or liberal? Especially women, non-Muslim women or feminists. They ask me, are you liberal or traditional? And I'm like, can't I be both? Can't I choose both the best worlds that mm-hmm. makes me the, pers- the best version, the best, uh, the best person I, I can be um, or the best version of myself? Absolutely. Why do we have to be liberal? But what does liberal mean from a Western perspective? Does that mean taking off my hijab? Um, and if I'm traditional, does that mean I can't wear makeup? I can't, you know, honestly, it's, it, it's, it's a big, massive topic. And honestly, to me, every person you interview, every woman, every guy will have a very different perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah. No, I really love that you bring this up, like this whole intertwining our identities. And you hear comments like, are you a modern Muslim? Oh, we're modern Yemenis. I feel like that defeats the purpose and it puts down everyone else who doesn't identify that way. And I really do not like those terms. It's a, it comes from a very Orientalist uh, mindset. It comes from uh, a non western it comes from like a western mindset and not a like a you know a middle eastern mindset a muslim mindset a yemeni mindset and you in a way i feel like you're kind of letting go of yourself because you want to fit this box now this is just my opinion guys so if anyone disagrees with me this is how i view it because 
I tried to fit in that box growing up and try to be that non-traditional person, try to be that modern person to the point growing up, you know, my name at school was Samaya. That's far from Samaya. Like it, they can say Samaya, like they can say Ansel Elgert. They can say Daenerys Targaryen. They can say my name. And that really hit me. I think it was after I graduated college. Like, mind you guys, I graduated, I was 24. So I'm already an adult here. I've already spent my whole life, everyone outside of my home calling me Samaya. And I had to reflect back like, hey, my name is not Samaya. And that was such a pivotal moment for me to kind of take back my identity because I started thinking about everything our parents have put up with, coming here, not knowing the language, getting multiple jobs and still struggling and just to make end meet for us. Like, you know, my dad was working 24-7. He had a store. Like, he was rarely home because he had a business to run. You know, at that time, I was upset because I wanted my dad home. I wanted to fit that narrative that I would see on Disney shows, the dads coming to the parents' conference. And it was mostly my sister that went because she spoke English. So I really appreciate that you're hitting these topics. Oh, no, definitely. Thank you, Samaya. Um, But I obviously know and acknowledge that you have some speakers who will talk about this a little bit more. Yeah. What's, what's the question? So, you know, you told me you started as a teenager, beginning your poetry, beginning your activism. And was there any obstacles that you faced Certain when you were doing that so young? Because I know you mentioned that your mom was afraid for you. We have a culture that's very much worried about sum'a. Like, how did you begin slowly to establish your own platform? Um, so really quickly, um, at the age of uh, 19, and I'm yeah. talking my professional career, um, I wanted to kind of like pursue my writing in a professional way, but I wasn't sure how to do it. And it was only until I literally did a Google search, a writing class or writing club, and it came up like eight weeks spoken word artist course with writing on the wall, which is an organization based in Liverpool. So I was like, okay, let's go to it. Bear in mind, I'd never heard of spoken word before. All I knew was poetry. Mm-hmm. And when I went, I was like, whoa, this is amazing because they teach you how to basically how to bring your writing to life on stage. So And then I basically discovered this idea of the love for for an audience because before I got onto a stage, I was an activist. Like I was always in protests, talking about social injustice and just everything. And I realised when you're in a protest, everyone around you who walks past looks scared of you. And I was like, why are they scared of us? We're, they should be coming into our space. We're trying to invite them. We're trying to say uh, an important message. We're trying to deliver an important message. And I just thought, no, this has to change. I need an audience. And, and I thought art is the best way. And yeah, and since then, I have not stopped. Um, I just love going onto stage and just sharing my work. And people, um, and I also appreciate an audience as well more than ever now with COVID. Um, yeah, um, and yeah, so that's how I kind of pursued my writing. It was literally, and this is the thing a lot of people f- uh, forget is when you want something, you have to look for it. If I didn't make that search on Google, I wouldn't have found it. If I didn't commit to that eight week course, I wouldn't be here where I am. And yes, it, it's you need passion, you need drive, we also need to do it as well. And if you're wanting to do something, start today. Don't think about tomorrow and don't dwell on yesterday. Just start today. Start now, whether it's a search. Um, and that's how I started my writing career, by one little Google search. Wow. It's like, you know, one thing can lead to another. You just like kind of you have to put yourself out there and do the actual work because nothing really falls into place for you if you're not going for it oh no definitely so mate like 2018 I was approached to write um a short play well to kind of facilitate and um help write co-write a play um with Ice and Fire Theatre who's based in London and they were wanting to write about uh Yemen and we sat and I, I sat with them. I wrote some poems that were inspired for the play. And then we basically collaborated with a Yemeni art uh, writer called Khalid. And he's based in Aden. And he was 19 at the time. 
And he basically, the play was about how a Yemeni British girl in the, in the UK wants to know more about her home. So she connects with Khalid on Facebook to talk about Yemen. So the play is about Khalid and Amina on one side of the stage and they're communicating through Facebook, social media. Um, and they're basically asking each other these questions, the questions that me and you were talking about, Sumaya, identity, where we're from. And I'm telling Khalid, tell me more about Yemen. Tell me more about the war. And he doesn't tell me anything about the war until the end. Because he says, all I want to do is to live. And that kind of like gave me another learning curve in my work um, about how I approach certain things. And but one learning curve from that was I became my own actor <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which was because I'm not an actor I'm just a performer I perform my own work and that was a really a struggle because for two weeks I had to learn how to become an actor and it was really difficult but you know what I loved it I absolutely loved it and alhamdulillah from that experience I'm now writing my second play called Broken Biscuits. And it's about a Yemeni girl who visits her grandmother's 1970s British Yemeni living room to untangle what it means to be British. And it's all about the same topics, about identity. and um, But yeah, so one experience definitely leads to another. Hence why I always say, anything that scares you, you should do it. That's really amazing. I'm curious, like, well, these plays, like, Will they be published online? Like, will, it be, will it be recorded? Um, so with, with theatre, you can't record because of copyright issues. But, um, but what you can do is I've kind of created a YouTube channel called Broken Biscuits, where I will be sharing with you know people the process. So the first video that I put up was me and my grandmother. We did an interview together. Um, so I interviewed my grandma in a theatre space, asking her about all these questions. When did she came? When she came to this country, what was life like? And it was it was a hilarious and sarcastic interview, and I absolutely loved it. I didn't expect it to be like that. Um, and I'm doing number two now. I'm actually looking for three other participants. So I'm looking for my grandmother's friends mm-hmm. her, her age who came at the time in the sixties. And hopefully I'll be interviewing four Yemeni women uh, from the, um, four elderly women from the Yemeni community in Liverpool. Um, And they can chit chat amongst each other to talk about their memories when they came to Liverpool and what was life like. So, so yeah, so uh, if you want to check that out, it's on YouTube. Um, And all you have to type in is Amina Atik interviews Grandma Hela. I'll definitely share it with you all. Make sure you guys check it out. I did watch the video with your grandma. It is absolutely adorable. And it made me think back to my grandma, Lair Hamha. I was like, gosh, I wish I recorded my grandma more. Like, I wish we all sat down with her and asked her questions. She was so cute and funny. Like, she would not want to be in the camera, pretend she was all shy. But mind you guys, my grandma was the type that loved dressing up. Like, I remember in Yemen, she would put on the kohar, wear her litman, like have the henna around her fingers. Like she loved dressing up, but she would pretend to be shy. And I wish we pushed her more, like all of us collectively, like my cousins and siblings, to record her and actually interview her for us, for our future children. So to everyone out there, if your grandparents are still alive, your parents, sit down with them and just record them and ask them questions. Because you never know where you'll be tomorrow. You don't know where their health will be or where you will be, but you'll be so happy you created that memory with them. Definitely. And I agree. And one of that was the reason for me. I was so glad I did that because the response online was amazing. And I just got loads of Yemeni people across the world saying to me, oh, I'm going to interview my grandma now. I'm going to go and do this. Or some people saying, oh, you know, my grandma, she, you know, she passed away a few years ago. I wish I did something like that because I would have learned a lot more about where, you know, when she came to America or the Netherlands or, you know. And so that's the reason I did it. It was kind of like setting an example of how things can be done. And, and look at the beauty of it when we sit with our elderly uh, uh um, grandmothers or granddads from our Yemeni community and, and how much we learn as well because the reason I interviewed my grandma is because the play is about her mm-hmm. and for me to have an accurate play it, it needs to be authentic and you know so yeah so my grandmother has become part of my research and development 
<laughs> She's absolutely adorable, mashallah. <laughs> so that being said, like I, from what I hear from you is like, you know, you've used your poetry to advocate for Yemen, to talk about our culture. You've used your YouTube, your the plays that you've created. And recently, I see that you're working on a new project called Yemeni Women in Frontlines. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, this kind of, this goes back to um, secondary school. When I was uh, in my English class and we were learning poetry, and I remember there was a like a theme called male war poets. Um, and that was part of like the curriculum in, in English, but there was nothing called female war poets. So I kind of like, I, I started thinking about where are the women in, 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 in war? Like, what is their role? And obviously you learn that women sacrifice a lot and yet their voices are not amplified or they're not projected in our history books so little compared to males uh war poets or the the male participate participation <laughs> in war um so that's where it kind of started i started thinking about the female role in war and why they're not appreciated or their stories are not told and it was kind of like i started like connecting with a lot of female artists in yemen and i saw the struggles that they faced and it was only recently for the past three years, I just saw the struggles that they faced and also the fact that they don't get paid for their art, which is, I already knew that before, but it was kind of like the, the lack of publication and the lack of opportunities. And obviously now with the war and the fact that art is not appreciated, yet the Yemen creates the most beautiful art, classical and contemporary. Um, so I kind of wanted to kind of focus on like the female female voices in Yemen during the war, but not actually look at the war. It was mainly to, to kind of give the limelight to women and talk, like my mom just came back from Yemen recently and she was telling me that a lot of women in the village are now have like social enterprises or like little businesses from their home to feed their children. So they're not waiting for the United Nations to send them aid. They've got up and they said, okay, how do we make money so my children can survive? And they set up their own little businesses, whether it's food, knitting, or and they and, and this is something that they probably haven't done before, or haven't dealt with money or negotiated on a business level. So, and I thought this is really important. It's it's it, it's it's how they how resilient they are, and it inspires me. However, I really thought I don't want to just focus on women in war because I feel like I don't want to exploit. Because sometimes what happens in when we're living in the West and we, we're looking from the other side, it can be seen as exploiting. So I wanted to be careful and I wanted to think about this morally and ethically because working with, when I've worked with Yemeni artists in Yemen, they never want to talk about the war. And that comes from resilience, that comes from dignity. But yes, we want to know all of it. And, and, and that learned me a lot about how selfish I am as a person. Mm -hmm. And I admit that because I'm human, but I admit that because I want to change it. And so I thought I need to change the brand. So I was thinking, what can I call it? And that's when I thought Yemeni women on the front line. And it's basically bringing all Yemeni women together globally and kind of bringing this community together of Yemeni women who are on the front line. And when I say front line, I'm not saying, you know, the, you know, the top, um, you know the top of your class it's about if you consider yourself someone who aspires to change or to challenge or to inspire so it can be women on the front line of healthcare. like I want to look at women in healthcare in Yemen and how they're dealing with it under the lack of health facilities in a war-torn country but then looking at female female lawyer we've got our first female lawyer now in London which is amazing but no we should be making history. We should be on front lines. Our first female Yemeni lawyer in, in the UK. Um, and the reason I wanted to do that is to really, really first to identify to its visibility and representation. Um, and hopefully it just brings all Yemeni women together. And it's the same thing with you, Sumaya. The kind of it's the same intention, but we're doing it in very different ways. And it's it's beautiful. 
And I'm so, honestly, it inspires me when I see Yemeni women like Sumaya and so many more that are just really doing this in their free time. And, and, the, and you know, for the reason of really trying to, you know, and it is. But yeah. also wanting to change that as well, to look at our faults and how do we change that? Let's communicate, let's come together. Sorry, I'm really passionate right now. No, I feel it. And it, it kind of makes me more inspired. I was talking to a friend the other day. I'm like, 2020 is the year for Yemeni women. Like, it makes me so proud to see so many people doing something at once. We need more of it. We need more people like you, Amina, more people like what I'm doing. Like, if you guys have an idea, go for it because at the end of the day we all have a shared goal how we do it might be different but we share this common goal like we want to help our community we want to put it back in the limelight we want to you know highlight everything that's so beautiful but also change what we don't like and to keep enhancing it like we can do that but we need to do that collectively definitely and you know somewhere i always say you you have a performer and an audience not everyone can become a performer or an artist but we also need an audience so if you can't set up your own initiative then collaborate support you know we also need your support as well um from men and women so yeah so if definitely if you can't set up your own thing come and support us whether it's you like it you share it you view it or you actually become part of the team so if you i'm looking for someone to help me out with yemeni women on the front line whether you want to help me with tech logistics um all of that you know um but yeah so let's do this together absolutely (laughs) and one thing i really want to talk about is what some people probably don't know and i really want to put a highlight on is you know the arab world we're known for our poetry it thrives in our communities and it really lives and breathes through Yemen's special occasions, our ceremonies in various vital ways, like whether it's defying wars, corruption, revolution, and just so much more. Like it has been used as a tool amongst many, many poets. It's used to record history, to influence the mass, like to seek change, to create like a, it has like overall, Yemeni poetry has left a legacy and mark on the Arab world. Like, we cannot deny that. And I really want to, br- like, bring light to this because you and I were talking about two famous poets. And we were both discussing about Muhammad Mahmoud al-Zubayri and Abdullah al-Baraduni. Mind you guys, Muhammad Mahmoud al-Zubayri is, like, one of the very first poets that I know of in Yemen. He was born 1910 to 1965. And he was known for writing revolutionary poetry. He was known having, like, connections to like politicians and he would recite poetry with the idea that he wanted to change Yemen he saw the hope for Yemen like you know what I'm an artist I'm a poet and I'm gonna use my poetry to reach out to people and to encourage them and to do what I can do and I feel like in some ways it's part of us poetry how do you feel about that like you know when you hear these names like well, I, I came across Mohammed Zubairi two years ago and um, being um, a Yemeni woman, a Muslim woman in, in a Western uh, poetry community, you know, I'm the only kind of Muslim woman in my own community here in Liverpool. So sometimes influence and inspiration is, you know, I, didn't, I couldn't find that in my own spaces. Um, and a lot of my friends who write as well, who were non-Yemeni, you know, I love their work, but I, I couldn't relate to it, you know. And I, 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 and I was looking for that, you know, I was listening to Iraqi Mawals and I was like, it's not there. I need to find. And when I found Muhammad Zubayri, I was like, oh my God. It literally, as soon as I heard this first poem and it was at an, an event, I was like, I have been not searching for this. I have been yearning for this. And now Muhammad Zubayr plays a big part of my work in the past two years, how I write about Yemen. And I kind of see myself a little bit in him, not as as great as him, because I think he's fascinating. But I just see a little bit, this kind of call for change, this wadan, like the love for your country. And I never knew how to articulate it into my work until I heard his work. And I was like, 
This is so beautiful. So Muhammad is really is, and this is the thing. Um, I wish I was told this when I was younger by my parents. I wish this was taught to us in 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 Arabic school, mm-hmm. because I don't know if you can literally, but my heart is like vibrating. And that's what it does, because when you find someone that you can relate to, it's liberating and it's empowering and it changes the way you write, the way you think, and and you resonate with it. And what Muhammad Zubaydi was writing, uh, what, 60 years ago, 70 years ago? Absolutely. It's the things that we feel now. It's the things that we, we, we want to kind of articulate, but we don't know how to articulate. So I would say... For what's going on in Yemen now, reading Muhammad Zubayr is the perfect time. It's still very relevant to his poetry. And you said something at the very beginning. Poetry speaks the truth. It does, and it's the gateway to the truth. It's the gateway to the truth. Oh, I misquoted. But yes, it's the gateway to the truth. People and want honesty. And poetry is the gateway to the truth. Say that one more time. People want honesty. And poetry is the gateway to the truth. And the way you describe him is how I felt by the other poet I had mentioned, Al-Biraduni. You know, I came across his poetry and I was reading it and like just reading his story, how he was blind and, you know, he was in prison due to his activism. And mind you guys, this guy was in prison for a very, like a very long time. He had no paper, anything to write his poetry, but he memorized it. And when I was reading his biography, he got out of prison to like have somebody write his poetry for him. He had to memorize his own words. I can't even remember what I ate yesterday. So to hear how resilient they are and how still relevant their poetries are and how much they really loved and hoped for change and they use their poetry as their tool, their avenue to express themselves is so inspiring. Like I connect to it. Like like a poem I was reading for one of his, it always makes me cry. It doesn't matter how many times I read it, I always cry and I'll, Will publish his poem so you guys can all also read it. It's just so emotional to see that and to be prideful for our, like our historical Yemeni poets. Be prideful for the people that have like made an impact or who tried to even do something. Be prideful of your roots. Like learn about our history because a lot of times we're in this bubble here living in a Western society. We have this idea of Yemen because we're not taught. You know, we didn't know about these poets. I didn't know about these poets until I went to Yemen and I was in in school and we had to memorize poetry. But even when I was there, honestly, I didn't appreciate it until now. And one thing I would really, if you're okay with it, I would love for you to share one of your own poems. Oh, um, yeah. Um, I'm I'm not gonna do. Um, but you're you're definitely correct. Um, so um, so my yeah. The poetry is so relevant and um, th- with the work that we do, I hope that we can bring, you know, the, the honour back to, you know, to the to these people, to these poets and to give them the, the credit that they deserve. I don't want to, you know, I know that our elders, elders won't forget it, but what about our generation? And I think this is a, I, I see this as a responsibility, as a duty. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why it's so important with what you're doing. So. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm going to do my poem. Um, so I'm going to go for Backbencher. And this is basically about identity. And it's about my father who who was born in Liverpool. Um, and I wanted to write about my father's perspective as a, as a, I don't know if you've, is sports, sports is a, is a, a big thing, right? In, um, US. in the Yemen community. Oh, the Yemen community sports? Yeah. Definitely. I know sports, a lot of people yeah. love soccer. So what I realized about the Yemeni men in Liverpool, they've connected with the the Western community through through sports and football. Mm-hmm. Um and so I wanted to kind of explore that and what that means. Um and that's me kind of looking at poetry from a wider perspective, not just talking about Yemen directly, but indirectly. So this is called backbencher. Um, and the, a backbencher means in football, when football players sit on the backbench. And I kind of put my dad in that place as a backbencher. And I want to talk about, is this how I feel as, as someone who's Yemeni Muslim and, um, and Arab, you know, 
are we backbenchers in the Western world? Do we just sit on the sidelines and watch? Um, so yeah, so it's a lot of themes. Um, but yeah, so backbencher. I saw my father cry for the first time. He gave birth to the city. To remind me home is sketched across his belly and the sirens did not stop yelling, but we kept on running and this will never be our game to play. And my father spat the city out of his mouth, chanting her anthem in his foreign tongue. And the red flag is the only song he knew. And I saw my father cry for the first time. He scruffled his hands in the mud to find the secret between our borders is the difference between this city and men in suits who sucked their thumbs and fiddled their fingers in our pockets. And young men like my father, black curly hair, brown eyes, mocker skin, curl their tongues in their political lingo. They sat on back benches and learned to watch from a distance. And I saw my father cry for the first time. He cradled the city in his arms, waiting to be loved. But all he knew that this glory does not belong to people like him. And the red flag is the only song he knew. And when my father died of a heartbreak, he told me to never give up on the city for no first love kills with a dagger. Thank you. Wow. Thank you so much, Amina, for joining me today. And thank you for sharing your poetry and like overall sharing today with the audience. Like I really do appreciate it. I look forward to seeing like your platform grow. I look forward to see Yemen woman on the front lines. I would definitely share that with you, all of you. So you guys can follow her, support her, share it amongst your friends. Like we really got to support our Yemeni woman. And I want to start seeing that more and more. And alhamdulillah, I am seeing that. So I'm very proud of everyone. And Amina, like, thank you again so much. It's been such a lovely time connecting with you. I feel like in some way, she's like my UK soul sister. (laughs) (laughs) So inshallah, like when this pandemic is over and COVID is over, I get to finally visit the UK because it is on my bucket list. Definitely. Thank you so much, Sumaya. And can we give a virtual round of applause to Sumaya? Um, Or credit, so please do support her. Um, Like I said, a lot of Yemeni women are doing things voluntary. They're doing things off their own time. And they're doing this for the reason to... Um, and it's a, it's, a big, it's a big thing. So please do support her. And thank you so much, Sumaya. Thank you, Amina, for joining me today with the time zone difference and taking time out of your own schedule, everything that's going on. I truly do appreciate it. And I know this won't be the last time we have you on here. I look forward to connecting with you in the future. And I want to encourage everyone, if you want to stay up to date with Amina's doing, please do follow her on Instagram, Amina Atik Poet. So that is A-M-I-N-A-A-T-I-Q-P-O-E-T. Be sure to follow her and give my girl a huge shout out. Show her some love and support. And with that, I hope you guys all have enjoyed your kahwa during this conversation. So after every episode, I like to take a moment and just re-listen to the episode and to kind of reflect on my own thoughts and what I think about it or just share a little bit where I'm coming from. Just bear with me, guys. At this point, I'm pretty much rambling. So as I had said, I will find the hadith that Amina was referring to. It is the hadith on eating, filling the stomach a third for food, drink, and air. I will not go into the depths of what this hadith means. I want to encourage you all to do your own research and your own understanding when it comes to the hadith. I will only just recite it for you. So, An Miqdam ibn Ma'ad reported, The Messenger of Allah, peace and blessings be upon him, said, the son of Adam cannot fail a vessel worse than his stomach, as it is enough for him to take a few bites to straighten his back. If he cannot do it, then he may fill it with a third of his food, a third of his drink, and a third of his bread. In this episode, we talked a lot about identity, culture, growing up in the West, reconnecting with our parents, 
and so many things like regarding language. Like I know for me, poetry was definitely an outlet growing up. Many times I struggled not being able to communicate with my peers who weren't Middle Eastern or Muslim and just also finding myself struggling to speak Arabic at home to connect with my parents. Language was definitely a barrier and I'm sure many children of immigrants can relate. So instead, I would just write and write and write to express myself. I would literally write poetry. But little did I know or understand anything about the rich history in Yemen regarding our poets. And now reflecting back, I realized it was that identity. I wanted to connect to some sort of identity. I wanted to connect to my father who also wrote. I wanted to connect to all these dots in my life that shaped me. And, you know, lately I've also been exploring more in writing. I've been trying to explore more writing about my culture, about how everything is kind of tied together and what has shaped me. There's this back and forthness. And it's all due to the space I have grown up, like this tug of war of how to communicate within my own community, how to express myself, how to connect to our families. All these little things have kind of shaped me as a writer. And now I ask myself a lot now, what does poetry look like for the Yemeni community? Majority of us growing up here in the U.S. or elsewhere are so disconnected from this history of ours. And once I connected and learned about our poets, I felt a great amount of pride that I felt was missing. So I do want to take a moment on this podcast to kind of explore that, explore our poetry, explore those poets, which is why I brought Amina because I think she's amazing and wonderful and I absolutely adore her. And learning about the journey of uh, Abdullah Berduni, you know, he this man was in prison for several years, almost like a decade, I believe. And yet he used his poetry as a tool. He used it as a way of activism because he wanted to see this change. He wanted to like advocate for his people and I've I in a way I felt like he was speaking to me he was speaking to the youth he's speaking to the many generations after him you know Allah he has already passed away and now I ask myself sometimes like did he ever get to see the change he wanted to see in Yemen how was Yemen during his time versus how it was in the 90s or 2000s etc and I'll never know that answer I won't entirely know unless somebody wants to share like some interview that he's had please do so but I like to imagine that his poetry is still very relevant because we see a lot of injustice, a lot of inequality, a lot of turmoil happening in Yemen, unfortunately, due to the current, um, current circumstances. I won't dive too deep what's going on in Yemen just yet on this episode, but I just want to reflect how his poetry is still very relevant. And one of his poems that still gives me goosebumps to this day, and I'll read it for you in English. Uh, mind you guys, I don't read poetry. I am not a spoken word person. I'm not as amazing as Amina, mashallah. And if anyone has any of his books or even a translated of his poetry, please, please share it with me. I will forever be grateful to you. So this is Al-Berduni's uh, poem, which I really, really love very much. And I think it's still very relevant to what's happening in Yemen. Okay. Let's give this a shot. I'm going to try to read one of his poems. My country is handed over from one tyrant to the next, a worse tyrant. From one prison to another, from one exile to another. It is colonized by the observed invader and the hidden ones, handed over by one beast to two. Like an emaciated camel in the cavern of its debt, my country neither dies nor recovers. It digs in the muted graves, looking for its pure origins, for its springtime promise that slept behind its eyes, for the dream that will come, for the phantom that hid. It moves from one overwhelming night to a darker night. My country grieves in its own boundaries, in other people's land, and even in its own soil suffers the alienation of exile. Okay, I'm not going to act or pretend like I'm this person who can freaking read poetry. I already know my brother is going to listen to this and probably die of laughter and he's going to send it to me. But it's all good. I'll take one L for the team because I really want you guys to hear this. I really want to share his work. I want to share Marini Poets' works. And if you follow Kahwa Chats on Instagram, I will be sharing their work. I'll share their poetry because I feel so inspired by it. I want you all to feel inspired by it. I want you guys all to feel prideful about it. 
because I think it's so important. I want everyone who's listening to ask yourself, like, how do you express yourself? Do you ever find yourself stumbling on words when you're trying to express yourself to your parents? I feel like language is such a powerful thing. Poetry is such a beautiful, powerful thing. I posted once online how I view language, and the way I view language is the way I view my own poetry. Like, so when I think of language, I think of the letters that really curve together, the emotions that they bring. These letters, like whether they're in black and white or bold colors, they connect lands, cultures, and people all together. When I look at these letters, I think about the history behind them, how it has evolved, how our mother tongues and accents have changed due to the colonization and migration. You know, for these are not just not letters. These are letters that have survived wars, that documented revolutions, and connected us to our homelands. And when I'm talking about these languages and letters, I'm really referring to the Arabic language. I'm referring to the poetry as well. Our poetry, our language, it has survived so much. It has documented revolutions. Remember that. Don't forget that. Don't ever forget that. Keep that in mind. And with that, everyone, I hope you have enjoyed this episode. And I'll talk to you guys soon again. Bye.